Welcome to Murder Minute. Today, the story of up-and-coming model Sally Ann Bowman. But first, your true crime headlines. An Alabama woman who went missing after texting a co-worker that she might be in trouble was found dead in a shallow grave behind a vacant house 15 miles from where she was last seen. 29-year-old Peyton Houston was last seen on December 20th at a local bar in Birmingham where she had gone out with some co-workers. An eyewitness saw her leave the bar voluntarily with two men around 10.45 p.m. About two hours later, she texted one of the co-workers who had been at the bar with her that night and told that co-worker that she did not know the men she was with and might be in trouble. She was not seen or heard from after that, and a reward of $10,000 was offered for information leading to the woman's whereabouts. Her body was discovered after investigators received a tip about the backyard in Hueytown, southwest of Birmingham. Neighbors said the dilapidated property had been vacant for some time. Houston's body was found wrapped in fabric and buried in a shallow grave in the home's muddy backyard. An autopsy has been completed, but Houston's cause of death has not been released. At this time, no arrests have been made in the case and the investigation continues. In Ohio, the trial begins this week for Jessica and Daniel Groves, who are charged with murder and the death of their infant son. The baby was found last July at the bottom of a 30-foot well on the couple's property in Otway, Ohio, 75 miles south of Columbus. His body was wrapped in plastic bags with duct tape around them and had been weighted down with rocks and anchors. The baby boy named Dylan had been placed in the custody of Child Protective Services after being born addicted to drugs last January. His father, Daniel Groves, was able to complete the reunification requirements ordered by child welfare agents, and Dylan was returned to his custody. Authorities grew worried when Groves started missing doctor's appointments and court dates, and they attempted to perform a welfare check at the family's home. The couple attempted to flee and were arrested after an hours-long standoff. Authorities found $42,000 in stolen items in the home, and in subsequent searches of the property, they eventually found Dylan Grove's body at the bottom of the well. It is believed that he died in March, and an autopsy found that he had multiple bone fractures and drugs in his system. Jessica and Daniel Groves are facing murder charges, as well as charges for kidnapping, endangering children, tampering with evidence, interference with custody, gross abuse of a corpse, and felonious assault. A 20-year-old South Carolina man was shot and killed while attempting to protect his mother during a domestic dispute. Police were called to the home in the city of Anderson, South Carolina, near 1 a.m. When they arrived, they found 20-year-old Landis Osby with a gunshot wound to his chest. Police and EMS tried to revive the young man on the scene, but their efforts were unsuccessful. Police say that four people in the home witnessed the shooting, including a six-year-old child. His mother's boyfriend, 40-year-old Richard Smith, was arrested and charged with murder and possession of a weapon during the commission of a violent crime. He is being held without bond as he awaits his first court appearance. Those were your true crime headlines. Next up, the murder of Sally Ann Bowman. But first, a quick break. 
Welcome back to Murder Minute. Today, the story of Sally Ann Bowman's murder. Sally Ann Bowman was living the dream of many young women. By her 18th birthday, she'd attended Brit School, a prestigious British Performing Arts and Technology Institute in Croydon, England, the same school Amy Winehouse and Katie Mellowa attended. The youngest of four girls, she fit the baby of the family archetype asserted by psychologists pretty well. She was highly social, confident, creative, and keen on being the center of attention. She loved dancing, singing, and entertaining, supporting these passions with part-time work as a hairdresser and barmaid. She was also an up-and-coming model, having become the face of swatch watches and drawing comparisons to supermodel Kate Moss. For the entertainment industry, it seemed she had it all. Talent, glamorous looks, drive, and that it factor that can really make a career. Sally Ann would have loved to hit the big time, and many believed she was well on her way. Instead, her bright light went out forever, on September 25th, 2005. The evening before, less than two weeks after her 18th birthday, she was eager to take her passport out for the first time to prove her age and legally buy a drink. Years later, her mother Linda told The Sun that she remembers that night as though it were yesterday. Sally Ann sat eating chips, she said, wearing a pink gown and slippers, and asked her sister Danielle for a ride to a club in Croydon. Before they left, Sally Ann stood in the doorway. Looking back, she said, Thanks for having me here, Mom. You don't have to thank me. I'm your mother, Linda replied. As Sally Ann reached the front sidewalk, she called back to her mom that she loved her. That almost seems like a foretelling scene from a movie now, the kind that makes you wonder if two characters will see each other again. Linda told her daughter she loved her too and reminded her to call home should she need a ride later. She would wait and wait for that call. After leaving her mom's house, Sally Ann spent the next few hours clubbing with friends, at one point meeting up with another one of her sisters, Nicole. Sometime after midnight, she called her boyfriend of two years, Louis Sproston, who was out with friends too. She asked him to pick her up and drive her to her place, something he was far from pleased with. The couple had a history of spats and repeated breakups and makeups, not an uncommon pattern in teenage romances. That night, they leaned toward the breakup side. Louis did as she requested, though, leaving his friends to pick her up. All the way to Sally Ann's apartment, they argued. They were both jealous of the other and suspected infidelities. Parked outside the building, the fight carried on for close to two hours. Once they had both had enough, she stepped out of the car and stormed off toward her place. Lewis sped away. Minutes later, someone grabbed Sally Ann and plunged a knife into her body. Neighbors heard screams, but chalked them up to a common dispute or sounds from foxes that were prevalent in that area at night. They looked out their windows, noting nothing suspicious, but the attack was far from over. The man kept on, stabbing and biting the young woman before raping her lifeless body. Several hours later, just after dawn, a passerby spotted her remains and called for help. Police arrived to a scene so horrific, they decided to take Polaroids to show neighbors for identification purposes 
rather than having them look at the scene straight on. Without hesitation, neighbors named the slain woman as Sally Ann Bowman. The aspiring model and singer, the daughter, sister, and friend. Soon after, Linda Bowman opened her front door to find police officer Stuart Cundy standing on her steps. Did she have a daughter named Sally Ann? Her first thought was, what have they done now, she later told Scottish TV presenter Christy Young. She knew Sally Ann had been out having fun with her pals and sisters. If only it were a matter of simple mischief. Cundy didn't waste any time staying true to his commitment to be upfront and transparent with loved ones of the deceased. Their daughter had been stabbed to death. Authorities described the knife attack as controlled but frenzied, and one that created some of the most awful defense wounds they had seen, all made worse by the horrific indignities of post-mortem rape. The patch of sidewalk where Sally Ann took her last breaths soon filled with flowers, including a wreath from her grandmother, Olive, with a note that read, For our beautiful granddaughter, she will always be in our hearts. Once the investigation began, Sally Ann's family made a public appeal for help in solving the case. Leads poured in, providing detectives with 50 names and 150 phone calls with tips to consider. CCTV footage showed the young model chatting with friends at a bar a few hours before the attack, which was estimated to have occurred between 4.15 and 4.20 that morning, just after her boyfriend Lewis sped away. As is typical with murder cases, romantic partners are often a suspect and the first to be questioned. There's even a term for the murder of a girlfriend or wife, oxoricide. And a U.S. Department of Justice study showed that 83% of spouse murderers are men. When police approached Lewis the day after the murder, he assumed it had to do with the argument he and Sally Ann had the previous night. It wouldn't have been the first time authorities were made aware of their bickering. But was his jealousy a motive? Absolutely not, according to him. Through four straight days of questioning, Lewis never shifted from his claim that he had nothing to do with the attack. Their relationship wasn't perfect, he said, but they cared about each other deeply. After the quarrel, he expected that they would soon mend things and carry on as usual. When DNA analysis showed that the semen discovered in Sally Ann's body belonged to someone other than Lewis, he was removed as a suspect. From there, the case went cold for nine months, Sally Ann's family having to not only grieve, but wonder who had been responsible for the murder, aware that the killer remained free, living his life while their beloved's was stolen. Then on June 15, 2006, a 36-year-old man named Mark Dixie got into a brawl after watching England play in the World Cup on TV at a pub. By this time, taking DNA samples for minor offenses was standard. As police questioned Dixie about the bar fight, the man broke into tears, which seemed odd, until his DNA sample came up as a perfect match with the sample in Sally Ann's case. He was promptly arrested and charged with her rape and murder. His co-workers at a pub where he worked as a chef were stunned to hear of his crimes and sadistic history, according to The Sun. Dixie had three children and a girlfriend who described him as the life of the party when he was taking drugs, but dramatic mood swings often followed. Because Dixie refused to admit to the murder, 
Sally Ann's family had to endure a trial, hearing painstaking details of the assault. Dixie ended up admitting to and detailing how he had raped Sally Ann's corpse, which prompted her mother to flee the courtroom in tears. He also fantasized about a sex killing earlier on and masturbated over newspaper images of Sally Ann. He filmed this act, and the video was used as evidence against him. If only someone had found that film or learned of his obsession sooner. It's difficult to say whether Dixie felt compelled to murder the young woman or if he killed primarily to feed his perceived need to have sex with corpses, which would be considered necrophilic homicide. While necrophilia isn't associated with a particular disorder, some necrophiles have been diagnosed with conduct disorder and antisocial personality disorder. While neither one justifies violence, they might help explain Dixie's lack of empathy or remorse. People with antisocial personality disorder, also called sociopathy, often violate the law. They lie and act impulsively and have problems with alcohol and drugs. If or when they harm others, they feel virtually nothing except satisfaction, as long as it helps them get their way. The trial also meant that two victims of Dixie's earlier crimes would have to relive the brutality he had imposed on them. The man's checkered past included a conviction for robbery, during which he mugged a woman at knife point, an indecent exposure and assault, for which he was sentenced to two years of probation. He was also deported in 1999 after being convicted of assault, and later accused of masturbating in front of a woman in a phone booth. The day of Sally Ann's murder, Dixie had stayed overnight at a friend's home near her apartment. During the day leading up to the murder, he celebrated his 35th birthday, downing copious amounts of drugs and booze. It's believed that he attacked a woman motorist in the area about 40 minutes before he killed her. Then, just after 4.15 a.m., neighbors heard those screams. Prosecutors alleged that Dixie hid near her apartment, watching and waiting like an animal prepared to pounce while she and Lewis argued, then didn't hesitate to make his move. The jury, consisting of seven women and five men, found Dixie guilty of all charges. His punishment would be life in prison, with a minimum of 34 served years. During the sentencing, the judge said to the killer, No words of mine about what you have done can remotely match the ones you have heard today from Mrs. Bowman. I shall only say that what you did that night was so awful and repulsive that I do not propose to repeat it. Your consequent conduct shows you had not the slightest remorse for what you had done. Nearly nine years later, in January of 2015, Dixie wrote a letter to police stating that he wanted to tell the truth about what happened to Sally Ann. He ended up confessing to two more attacks too, including severe sexual assault when he was just 16. The wrong man, Romano Vanderdussen, had been charged with and imprisoned for those crimes. No outsiders can know whether he confessed because he wanted credit or if, deep inside, he had some amount of remorse after all. Skeptics and psychoanalysts might assume the earlier. Regardless, if detectives had caught him back then, Sally Ann might still be alive. Dixie's three-page letter detailing his added crimes was used by Romano's lawyer for an appeal. Sally Ann's mom supported his appeal, and Romano sent her a message of gratitude. 
In 2014, she told Mail Online she was absolutely appalled that her daughter's life could have been saved with greater diligence from authorities, and that, quote, an innocent man had spent 11 years of a 16-year sentence in prison for a crime he did not do. After the verdict of Sally Ann's murder trial was read, her father, Paul Bowman, spoke on the family's behalf. The last two and a half years have been torturously painful and immensely difficult, he said. I do not think we could have gone through it without the love and support that has been hugely available from family and friends. I hope that now Sally Ann can rest in peace and those affected so deeply by her untimely and brutal death can be afforded at least the chance to begin to grieve in earnest. Then he shared an emotional message for his daughter. Sally Ann, you may have been taken from us, but rest assured, you will forever be missed and never forgotten. In the words of the song, your heart will go on. Outside the courtroom, Sally Ann's mother Linda spoke about immense pain in her heart and said that her life seemed to end with her daughters. All she wanted was to hold her again, to smell her perfume, and say to her everything she never had a chance to. As they drove away, she played a recording of Sally Ann singing the Celine Dion song. She had the singing voice of an angel, Linda said, which is very fitting now. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.